everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking? And this week we are going to be chatting to Michael who has some really interesting experiences working in uh, the charity sector of veterinary practice but is also um, currently learning to vaccinate human beings for the coronavirus. In our clinical segment this week, uh, we're going to be chatting to Liz, the lovely Liz again, about some of the common arrhythmias that we'll see in our emergency patients and how to recognise and deal with those. Just to introduce myself, my name is Scott. I am one of the founders of VTX and I am a European and Royal College recognised specialist in small animal internal medicine. I'm joined as always, uh, thankfully she's back from that break we talked about... (laughs) Uh, I'm joined by Karen, the my friend and VTX podcast producer. Hello, Karen. Hiya. Did you enjoy your break? <laughs> Wasn't really a break, but yeah, yeah. Wasn't really a break. <laughs> We've made it into a thing. It's not really okay, but we're so glad that you're here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I missed you too. Are we good to go, Karen? Yes, we are. Okay. So, Michael, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Um we were really glad to have you on for lots of different reasons and I think just your perspective on so many of the things that have been happening in the veterinary profession recently is going to be really valuable. I don't know, can we just start by you telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and your, um, just the kind of highlights of your career so far? Sure. Um, So I moved to the UK when I was 19 to study, Um, came from Greece, um, but was originally um, raised in South Africa and yeah, went to the university of Edinburgh, uh, which is where I met. Good choice. Yeah. Which is Good choice. You. <laughs> Apparently the best vet school in the UK. So, yes. Um, the best. Uh, yeah. And right. obviously you were doing your residency in medicine mm. at the time. So we had you as a tutor for a lot of our funding rotations. Um, so some great stories to tell. Yeah. And I, I always remember your rotation group was, a highlight for me not obviously because you were in the rotation group but also um because Adele was in your group and and she so Adele I think so for those of you that don't know Michael and can't, obviously can't see him because he's not uh, he's just speaking but um he's very tall and Adele is very small and I just think that it was almost like you were this kind of comedy double act you know which I really <laughs> And actually, you were like a comedy type of like, which I really appreciated. But, yeah. Anyway. Kind of like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Yes. Just like, <laughs> exactly. Making our way through rotations, not knowing what's going on, but yeah. somehow getting there. Exactly. And actually, I was listening to one of your other <laughs> listening to one of your other podcasts on nutrition, and you divulged that on your um, ECC rotations, you would go into the dog ward and eat the sausages that were made <laughs> dogs. And I'll just say, did you do you, that? You weren't the only one. <laughs> See, oh no, that's they good were actually to know. very tasty sausages. Ah, so, right. Yeah. So, it's, oh, thank you for valid for. I feel validated in some way that that was like a really. Tired at three a.m. You just go in there, and yeah. put my sausage, and it puts you right up. <laughs> <laughs> that's something you will only hear. That is something you will only hear on this podcast. <laughs> Anyway, so um, once you got the best veterinary degree in the world, um, you then moved on to do what? What did you do coming out of vet school? Yeah, so I moved down to Bristol um, and did a small animal internship at Highcroft Vet Referrals, mm-hmm. um, which was an incredible experience. Um, got to do so much and learn so much and had some great mentors there. 
So that kind of set me up um, as a um, first opinion vet. So did that for 15 months, then moved to London. Um, and I've been here since. So yeah, um, working as a small animal vet. Um, I was working for the RSPCA for a few years, uh, but that recently came to a, an end, um, which yeah. we'll discuss, I think, um, yeah. in more depth in a bit. Um, yeah, and I'm currently locoming, um, just kind of getting through this pandemic, doing shifts here and there, um, and just taking a bit more time to, to kind of reflect on <laughs> my life and my career. Good. Um, yeah. And I, I think just picking up on something you said there, which I think is, is really valuable, is that you did an internship, and actually I'd forgotten you'd done that, and I think what's really important about what you just said there is that I did this internship I learned a lot and actually it set me up for being you know a a confident general practitioner and I think it's important that people understand that doing an internship is not um, just because you want to go on and do a residency necessarily or do x y and z and I've got other friends who have done internships and actually have felt that maybe they didn't want to go on and do residencies but it set them up as as more confident general practitioners. And I think that's often missed. You know, an internship is not just a gateway to X, exactly. Y, and Z. You know, it can give you lots of different valuable skills. Yeah. I mean, if you if you do find the right internship, which I was lucky enough to do, um, it's like an extension of your final year rotations, except you're actually the vet. You're actually the one doing the work and practicing what you learn. And you have this guaranteed support system um, and mentorship and a team that you're working with from start to finish and it's the best way to learn it's the safest way to learn as well and and I do have unfortunately have quite a few of my friends from vet school that kind of just went to the first job that was offered to them mm-hmm. and they have some horrific experiences how yeah. in the first few months they were shoved in a in a branch practice by themselves with no support asked to do all these things that they've never done before um, and it was traumatizing I mean traumatizing for them but even for us to hear the stories that they went through and the the kind of isolation and sadness and depression and everything it, it does scar you um so I think totally yeah I was definitely lucky enough to to find that um that internship and um I mean I think now a lot of places are doing um kind of grad scheme um placements which which hopefully can offer the same amount of support but I think some of them you do have to be careful and you do have to make sure that they are guaranteeing that support system and, and the treatment. And I, I, yeah, I think that's a really, really important point is that it's, I think it's easy um, for a lot of these bigger corporates to offer these programs. And I think it is, it is the reality, you know, it's, it, it's all very shiny on paper. Is that really translating into the, the support that they actually need? Because I think you're absolutely right. Traumatizing is a really um, very accurate and descriptive word for that experience when you're when you're isolated, particularly as a new graduate. And we've talked about this before. And you actually, you just feel like crap. You feel like you're not doing a good job, and actually you're just a burden to everyone. And that's how we end up with people kind of spiraling into really, really kind of dangerous places of, um, of of you know depression and mental health issues. And that can really um, fuel that fire so I think having support particularly in that first job and actually interestingly my so my first job was in charity practice um with the PDSA not the RSPCA and I tell you what you know that was for me one of my 
favorite jobs, probably because I was young and enthusiastic and that definitely helps. But I was surrounded just by a lot of good people and it, the, the work was hard, but it was fulfilling because it was also fun. And I, I you know, I, I, and I don't come away feeling traumatized by that. Do you know what I mean? And that's, I think, really important. So why did you, th what, what, what was the, the reason for you deciding to go into kind of charity practice and work for the RSPCA? Because as I'm sure people are aware, it's very different from kind of traditional first opinion practice, right? Yeah, I mean, it's extremely different, especially working in London in a lot of the affluent boroughs. It's like night and day going from, from private practice to charity. I think I, I felt like I wanted the change. I wanted to feel like I was doing more for the wider community and for, for animals and animal welfare. Um, also, I was working at the time, I was locuming in um, one vet practice, didn't really have a big team around me, um, wasn't getting to do much surgery and I really do enjoy my surgery. Um, and yeah, a friend of mine was working at the RSPCA, Alex Wade-Smith, who's also from, um, from mm -hmm. Edinburgh. And she said, you know, there's a position going, why don't you apply? And literally that same day I applied and then had, a, had an interview a few days later and, and got the job. And it was one of the best decisions I could have made. Um, I think just working in um, an institution like Putney Animal Hospital um, was, was just such an amazing experience and such a big team that you'd work with. Um, and probably the first time that I, I really properly enjoyed being a vet because oh, um, yeah. I could see directly see how my day-to-day -day work there was was helping the animals in need and, and also helping people and people that couldn't afford you know the vet care which which is expensive rightly so um, but there are a lot of people that depend on animals and, and use them as their support system and they need to have that kind of support from us as well I I've spoken to, we've spoken to a lot of people and I've spoken to a lot of vets and vet nurses, you know, veterinary care costs money and we're all aware of the fact that that has to be because that is not a, a, a publicly funded sector. And there would be some people that would be of the opinion that actually you really shouldn't have an animal unless you can afford to look after that animal and that includes paying for vet bills. I'm not sure that I complete, I'm not sure it's as black and white as that actually. Um, and I think you would find a lot of people, particularly people working for street vet or other organizations that maybe deal with people, very vulnerable people and their animals, that actually animals provide almost a vital uh, lifeline for some people in their life. And so I'm not sure it's completely fair to say that you can only have an animal if you can absolutely afford to provide X, Y, and Z for that animal. I don't know it's just not quite for me it's not quite as black and white as that do you, do you would you agree with that 100 percent. i mean we've seen a huge range we had a huge range of clients um at the hospital and and a lot of those clients you could see that their pets were their emotional supports they were the reason why they got up every day and got out and, and went for a walk in the park and and had something to look forward to we had you know old age pensioners people with quite severe disabilities and for them their animal was their life um, and obviously they're not in the position where they can have a full-time job and and have a higher salary or, or even just work in general a lot of these people couldn't work um, so so for them I think the charities are an amazing resource to have and and they're brilliant 
for those people. Obviously, with with anything, you get people who abuse the system, um, and and you do have some people that you say, you know, you really shouldn't have these pets, or you know, I can tell that you work. Why are you using a charity? A lot of people, you know, instead of having one dog, they'll have five. Um, and in that case, yeah, you need, you have to have some restraint and say, well, you should actually not own this many pets. Uh, but for the majority, I say, especially you see homeless people and, and they have their dogs. And as long as we have charities like Street Vet, for example, that are there to look out for the welfare of those pets, I think I think it is it is fair to to say that people, even if they can't always afford pets, to in certain circumstances. Yeah, no, I would agree, yeah. So contrary to your um, Instagram feed, so you don't just spend your whole day cuddling puppies, <laughs> kittens, um, doing things with hedgehogs and cute birds, no? Um, yeah, well, yeah, 95%, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, because I, I, I think there are some photos where you're like the male version of Mary Poppins. Like I think you know, with like a robin on your finger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cinderella. Not Cinderella. Funny. Okay. Okay. Um, sorry. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you give the people what they want. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Good point. That is what they want. <laughs> I, do, I have to admit, it is. It is not a true representative of of what my day is like. But I do. I do try and say that, and I do. Kind of voice that to my followers um that wasn't a criticism i think that was a really i think at the end of the day i think you're it's, it's putting out some positivity and actually that's not a bad thing in any way shape or form so I, that wasn't me being critical in any, in any way so don't take it that way um, and we all know that your job is not completely like that so tell us i think so um you know you worked for the rspca for how long in total um i was there for two and a half years Okay. And you, you mentioned obviously that, I mean, and I love the way that you sort of said that this, this, this hospital really was an institution as far as it was a well-known name across the, the, the industry. Like I've, I've never worked in London and I, we all know the name of that hospital, you know? Um, so obviously that hospital is now no longer, which is very sad. Um, and so, not only did you have to kind of navigate coronavirus, but you had to navigate um, uh, the closure of the place that you worked. So I don't, I don't know if you can just talk to her a little bit about that experience. Yeah, gosh. So it was it's quite a sad, sad story actually for us and for everyone involved. But it actually started December two thousand and nineteen um, when the charity announced that you know they're in quite a bad position with with funds mm. and they turned around to us and said we have to scrap all your contracts um you're not going to get kind of the the normal allowances that you get or the the standard increases every year that even though they're tiny there was still something when you're on a, a charity salary um and they said if you don't want to sign these contracts then unfortunately you just have to to leave um and we got the union involved and it was quite a few, quite a turbulent time for us, um, having all these meetings and discussions and, and trying to keep our jobs, but then also maintain a bit of dignity. You know, when, when someone says, sorry, we're just gonna scrap that contract that you signed, it means nothing. Um, mm. Sign this or you lose your job. That was quite a difficult position for us to be in. Eventually we all ended up signing the contracts because we loved our job so much and we, 
we couldn't even imagine leaving the hospital. Um, and then coronavirus happened <laughs> a month later. Um, and you know, when the, when the lockdown started and, and we started seeing what was going on around the world um, and with the UK economy, I actually turned around to my colleagues and I said, I, I really don't think this is gonna be good news yeah. for us, given that the position we're yeah. already in as a charity. Mm. Um, and then lo and behold, June came and they said, we're planning on doing a massive um, reshuffle of, of the funds and people's jobs are at risk. And then you have to go through a 45 day um, formal process where it's just formalities basically. And, and they say, well, if you want to try and, you know, come up with a, a plan to save money and, and that could potentially save the hospital, then, then let us know. So we had everyone's hopes up really trying to think of all these ways that we could make more money and, and save money. Um, but at the end of the day, they just turned around and said, sorry, we're closing the hospital. Um, but the worst part, and I think the nail in the coffin was that they said, we're closing the hospital, but we have to continue working for quite a few months after that. Um, and that was just such a depressing, sad time for us because we had to come into work. We started reducing what we were doing. We start, stopped seeing clients then eventually stopped taking in strays, but still had to go into work. So it was, it was just forcing you into this, to face this negative, you know, atmosphere and, and everyone would come in and would all be on edge. People would walk in and just start crying um, because a lot of us have been there for, for years, even decades. Mm. And I think many of my colleagues had planned to spend the rest of their careers there. Um, so to suddenly have that ripped away from you uh, and you have absolutely no control over it, um, mm. that was just heart-wrenching to, to watch. Um, and just to realize that, you know, the work that that hospital did, we did so much for, mm. for animal welfare and, and for strays and for animals that were abused and the mm. horrific cases that we would see. And, and literally then one day the doors just closed and that was it? Just closed, yeah. Um, uh I just it's 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 mad, isn't it? And I think you just I've heard so many times speaking to people across the, the veterinary sector. Obviously, a lot of people's jobs have been affected by coronavirus, but the the general feeling is that vets and vet nurses were still all, you know, employed, and that won't be an issue. But actually, that's not true, and people's jobs have been affected in the veterinary sector by this, not just by the 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 problem here with with the the charity sector, but also with the pandemic. So the question is then, I mean, well, two questions where you've got all these staff that now don't have a job. But I think the wider issue is you've got all these animals and people and wildlife and strays that you've been servicing for years, decades. What, where do, what, do they just all, where do they go? What, what do they do? Well, that was, that was kind of the question that we were asking. <laughs> um, where do the people go? Um, and I think we just have to rely on I don't think any formal plans were made but we just had to rely on the goodwill of surrounding veterinary practices and surrounding charities to, to maybe take on some of those clients and maybe be more willing to take on wildlife cases for example because I think we were actually the only wildlife hospital within the M25 that would initially treat you know foxes and badgers and hedgehogs and birds of all sorts um, and then send them over to, to wildlife sanctuaries to, to rehabilitate them. Um, so yeah, we have the hospital up in North London in Harmsworth, and I think they are seeing some of the, a, a lot of the strays. 
Um, but we, we covered a huge part of London and outer London um, in, our, in, our, in our catchment area. So I don't really know. I think those clients are probably struggling quite a bit, um, sadly. So yeah, it's, it's quite depressing just to, to think of that. I know it is. And so do you think, are there any lessons to learn from that? Do you think there are, or do you come away thinking we could have, things could have been done better or differently, we could have avoided that? Or do you think it was an inevitable kind of conclusion to the whole thing? I think in terms of what we did as a hospital, there was nothing more that we could do. We did our jobs and we did our jobs well. Unfortunately, we weren't the ones managing the funds. And that's, we'll just leave it at that. It's such a difficult thing. And I think what I feel so much for you and for your other colleagues who had to then just go through the 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 emotional struggle of having to deal and process with that. Um, because I think we've said this, you know, Karen, I've said this to many people, being a vet and being a vet nurse and being a veterinary professional and being a vet at the RSPC at this iconic hospital in London, it becomes so much about your identity as well, you know, because you almost, you, you incorporate some of that into who you are and, 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 and it, you kind of lose a bit of that then, you know what I mean? So you, it really does have quite a profound effect, I think, on all those veterinary professionals as individuals. And, and, and again, will have a massive impact on, uh, their well-being and their mental health as well. well definitely. Like, like I said, I mean, when you work there, you, you feel like you found your family you're, and you're calling, you know, and you say, this is what is making me happy as a vet. Um, and I feel like I'm, I'm giving back. And it isn't all about the cost of treatment because we have, you know, the charity paying for 75% of the bill. It, it gave you also a sense of security because you think, you know, I work for the oldest and largest charity in the UK. I work in this hospital that's been here for over a hundred years. I'm safe. Nothing's going to happen to my job. And, and then I think that was the biggest and hardest shock that I had is realizing that as, you know, a vet, not even I'm safe Yeah. and, and we can lose our jobs in the matter of, yeah. you know, a few days. And I think that's really valid. I think that's the thing. I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's not being, we can't take anything for granted. You know, it's, it's uh, the, the world, you know, the world is in a sort of fragile place. I think it's so nice to hear you say that you enjoyed your job. And actually there are so many vet professionals that don't enjoy going into their work. And actually for you then to have such enjoyment with your job and then to have that kind of taken away, I think, you know, again, is, is, is just a, a really sad um story, but Equally, I'm sure, um, you know, focusing on the positives, you have to kind of, you, you have to move on. And, and and I know that, I think locuming, you know, is a nice way of kind of just bridging a gap sometimes and, and not then, you know, taking some time. I think, uh, <laughs> not to be too, again, this is not being critical of your Instagram feed, but so let's talk about the other things. So it's nice to see you with robins on your finger and um, hedgehogs, but also um, I think you send out a bit of positivity about maybe um enjoying things outside of work and um, we sometimes see you on a yoga mat which, <laughs> which is inspiring i thought to myself maybe i should do more yoga okay yeah. I, think, <laughs> I can't remember where i i can't remember where i read this but actually it might have been one of my mentors when i was doing my internship but he said no matter what you do in your career just remember that being a vet isn't your sole identity and don't make it your sole identity. You are Mike Lazarus, and your profession is a veterinary surgeon. 
And I think when you have that mindset, you realize that you have to prioritize things and you have to prioritize your mental health and your relationships and your friendships and your exercise and your hobbies. And I think as long as you get that in order, you're less likely to suffer from, you know, fatigue. And, and I think probably even it can set you up to resent your job and your career if you say that all I am is a vet and, and all I'm focusing on is a vet. Because then when things don't go as planned, which definitely happens as a vet or a vet nurse, you start to, to almost look at yourself and say, what am I doing wrong? Um, so yeah, I just think having and making time for, for life outside of your work definitely brings a bit of joy and, and gives you a bit of an extra skip in your step. So do you think, are you good at that? Do you think you've achieved that? I, I do, I do definitely. And, and I think I always have prioritized, not prioritized life outside work, but I've always really valued my time when I'm not working. And I make sure that my time is used well. Um, holidays are there for a reason and you should really use them and and I mean my family don't live in the UK so I always make time to go back to Greece to see them and my family and stuff like what a struggle for you that must be hard <laughs> I mean I mean I just I do make time to head back to the Greek islands <laughs> I mean definitely lucky in that sense that for me going home is going back to Greece Karen Karen and I also prioritize going to see our parents in the north of Glasgow so <laughs> it's not got quite the same ring to it does it <laughs> even in london we do have lots of parks around us and i really take time to be outside and and, and enjoy the parks and just sit, sit on a bench when we're allowed to sit down on a bench um and just look at the nature and, and listen to the birds and you know I, I try and identify the birds that i can see and it, it just distracts you from from all the negativity that's going on right now um and definitely taken up to watching a lot of netflix as well which is good <laughs> oh yeah so we have to mention our favorite netflix yeah. show which is da, 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 shit's creep so, <laughs> so i know karen's gonna die because we i've i jack and i who was on the podcast talk about this as well but I am not joking. I'm saying it loud and clear. If Dan Levy's watching, I really want him to come on the podcast. He is my favorite human being in the whole world. And I tell you what, if it hadn't been for Shit's Creek, I don't think lockdown would have been as survivable for me because it is literally just the best show in the world. And if I'm having a down day, I'll need to start getting onto that yoga mat. But I actually just pick out my favorite episodes of Shit's Creek and watch the open mic night over and over and over and over again. <laughs> so those of you listening who watch Shit's Creek will know exactly what I mean. So I think, um, yeah, I think, but things like that, and I think we shouldn't feel guilty about, you know, using that sort of thing to to kind of navigate our way through that as well. I think all of it, any sort of um, activity that just allows you to release in a sort of different way or escape from the reality of the world in a different way, we're not going to be in this lockdown forever and, and soon we'll be back to our hectic lifestyle, life schedules no. and almost wishing that we had more time just to sit and relax. So I know. It, is, it is worth just taking this, this time and, and really just doing what you want to do and don't live up to other people's expectations because I think you can go on social media and people can be boasting about how they've renovated their house or how they've learned another language, <laughs> something like that during the lockdown. I think that's just setting some really false expectations. <laughs> so Karen's laughing because 
or if you go back to if, if those of you who are listening if you go back to the first podcast that we have recorded number one you will hear that Karen and I talk about the fact that I started painting the outside <laughs> of my house now the outside of our house has not been painted I mean we did I think we did one wall did we Karen one wall it was a really yeah. good effort but it was an absolute disaster I also talked about learning Spanish that never happened and I've certainly not done any exercise <laughs> so I have not achieved any of that but I've watched Shit's Creek um I I was gonna say so talking about coming out of this pandemic on a positive note actually you are helping us to come out of this pandemic because you're correct me if I'm wrong actually going to be vaccinating human beings is that right yes yeah, so I'm halfway through the um process of applying um there are a lot of gosh lots of forms and everything that you need to fill up um but hopefully yeah very soon i might be vaccinating people cool that's very cool that's and that i really i know, I know there are vet professionals that are that are doing that i think that's a very very cool thing to do me too i mean it it does not appeal to me in any way shape or form to have to touch other uh people but um <laughs> i <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. But I think um, humans, we don't get to see too much of, of sort of human illness in veterinary medicine. The only time that I literally run out of the room is, I don't know if you've ever had anyone vomit in a consulting room before, or uh, have you ever had that? Have you, have you ever had anyone pass urine? In, in the consult room? Yeah, I've had that happen. So I've had, so I've had a person. someone... Yeah, I've had someone right. pee themselves. A person urinated in a consult. I've also had a couple of vomiting episodes, one of which was totally traumatic because it was a child. So I think I delivered some sad news. I'd, I'd induced the vomiting in some way <laughs> and the child vomited and it was undigested, like um, alphabeti spaghetti letter shape thing. Oh no. But you could literally still read the letter. <laughs> What did it say? Help. So I think that it just. So you know, and I, and then I was, you know, like I, I don't have a, a, a I don't have a stomach for human sickness. Like that is absolutely me neither. It's the worst. Gag inducing. Yeah. So then I had to just run yep. out and have a moment to myself. Anyway, sorry. So people's arms are fine. People's arms are fine. You're not going to be. Hopefully, hopefully people won't be vomiting when I start giving this vaccine. Um, yes. You can't rule it out. Obviously, everyone, anyone can get a side effect from, from the vaccination. No, that's a that's, that's a very cool thing to do. So aside from kind of obviously, um, we know your your locum just now. Aside from vaccinating human beings, which is very cool. What what are your kind of plans uh, for the future? Yeah. Um, so I think one of the one of the good things about pandemic and, and the redundancy um, allowed me to, to kind of branch out into other areas and mostly non-clinical areas of vet medicine, um, which was like a breath of fresh air, actually. It was, it gave me something to look forward to. And I, like you got involved with as well, um, investing in education, which is a course for um, high school students wanting to apply to vet school. Um, and, you know, the first course we did was a huge success and it was such a rewarding experience seeing all these really enthusiastic students um, relying on us for, for advice and, and mentorship to, to get into vet school. So that's something that's been a highlight definitely in the last few months. Um, and we have a few more courses coming up in, in March and April. I'm also, you know, the vet ambassador for a few things. Um, started work with a, a nutraceutical company um, do you find that your your instagram notoriety 
has that opened up any sort of avenues from a kind of uh, um, work point of view? Do you get opportunities because of the number of followers you have? Like, is that a thing? It, it definitely, it definitely can. I mean, we, you do get lots of very odd requests as well, and things that are completely kind of unrelated to. Give us some examples. Do tell. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to talk about They're that. They're not yeah. all appropriate. No. <laughs> Amazing. We have to, I want to know about them all afterwards once we've stopped the record. <laughs> Tell us about suitable ones for air. Some some random person messaged me the other day lives in, in America and they were like, oh, I'm a sports therapist. If you ever come to Miami, I'd love to massage your feet or something. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh my God, I love that. But I'm sure lots of people get odd requests like that. Michael, I can guarantee you that no one has ever offered to massage my feet. So that is just, that's all you, okay? Social media is a very, very weird, weird place. It has opened up opportunities. Um, and obviously you can do some paid posts yeah. um, working for some pharmaceutical companies. And you know what, in this time where, you know, I was, I lost my job and everything. It was actually a lifesaver and it, it gave me, allowed me to still have my savings. Um, you just have to be quite selective about what you do because you have to remember that people are following you for a reason and you have to respect those reasons. I totally agree with that. I think people, you know, at the end, there's lots of different avenues for people to make income and I don't think we should have shame about any of that. So we always ask our guests a couple of kind of questions. First of all, who inspires you? And it doesn't have to be veterinary, but do you have any sort of inspirations uh, in the field or beyond um, that you kind of look up to? Um, yeah, well, there's this, this wee Scottish lad up in <laughs> <laughs> He's really small. I mean, I, I, think, I think you can, you, you're definitely an inspiration to a lot of people that, oh, that Michael, you've, you've done your, your um, for the qualifications, um, you've managed to raise a family and do VTX outside of that as well on top of everything. So it shows that you can really multitask and, and sometimes hold on to your passions. And I think that we've seen you do this. You can tell that you're passionate about it. Oh, yeah. it's the second time you've uh, been nominated there, Scott. Um, I nominated him as well at Christmas. So. Okay. <laughs> that, you had to, Karen. I can't handle it. Look at him. He's like, hm, right, moving on. <laughs> no, I, no, I hate it. Um, that's very kind though. What about... Um, you talked about kind of um, sort of people, previous kind of mentors and things that your your internship is there. Yeah, definitely, I mean, one of my the, the, my mentors from um, from High Cross Vim, um, he's always been an inspiration. I think he's doing um, an ophthalmology residency now um, in oh, wow, Bristol. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, as you navigate your way through your career, especially when you're younger, you will remember everyone that does something and goes out of their way to help you and just i think people that take i think people that just have the time for it like i think that's i remember people that are that that are just because it's very easy i think to be dismissive of sometimes vet students and and all that kind of stuff because people are just busy and wanting to get on with their jobs um but i always remember the people that kind of were able to take time and not to be dismissive of you just because you were young and inexperienced and I think that always kind of stuck with me there are there will be a lot of young uh, not just young vets but younger people who are wanting to pursue a career in veterinary medicine who will 
listen to you and and to be you know and be aware of what you're saying on whether that be social media or beyond if, if you could send a message to them if there was advice particularly those really young people um a message that you could send to them or a piece of advice that you could give to them what would that be i would probably say being a vet is one of the most you know incredible professions that, that you can you can be but you do have to have a really good understanding of, of what it's like to be a vet i think before you apply so make an effort to to do your research courses like invest in for example just speaking to vets and say what is it like and, and would you advise this would you advise that just so you have a, a better understanding of of what the veterinary profession is because um, i think that's what a lot of people now are having to deal with is that we had these certain expectations of life as a vet but no one actually said you know in fact you know you're going to spend 80 percent of your time vaccinating and dealing, dealing with diarrhea as a first opinion vet and a lot of people struggle with that um, so just have a better grasp of of what you're getting yourself into and if you understand all that and you say you know what that's perfect for me brilliant you're going to be the happiest vet and you're going to enjoy your career but you just don't want that disappointment after you've spent such a long time getting to where you are and getting through vet school um just to realize that it's not the the right thing for you that being said with our vet degree there's a myriad of, of other opportunities that we can you know pursue which is one of the best things about our degree as well so if you were to have your time again would you do would you do the degree again would you do the same would you make the same choices 95 percent, yes i would say yes i would i think also because part of my childhood i'd love to you know become a zoologist and just do research out in the field um that was a passion of mine and I actually integrated in zoology um so I, i'd always say i would could imagine myself being happy doing that but I think I've found my calling and, and I'm really happy with, with what I do and my day-to-day -day life. You always have your, your down days and days when you think, why did I do this? Why am I a vet? But, you know, you get through those moments and then something brilliant happens the next day and you, you just say to yourself, you know, you, you couldn't do anything else in the world. Um, and I think that's the, the beauty of, of our profession. And one piece of advice I definitely give to, to everyone that might be, you know, in a similar situation to me, don't jump into the next permanent job just because you feel like you have to use locuming. It's there and it's an amazing, you know, opportunity for us. And it really does give you time to think about what you want to do. Um, and it allows you to think, you know, do I want to continue in this field or do I want to branch out? So yeah, definitely use, use locuming to your advantage and you can do it for a few weeks. You can do it for a few months, do it for a few years if you want. Um, but it just allows you to, to actually slow down and have time to think because we live in such a fast paced world and profession that we don't actually realize what's going on and the years can just pass us by and we need that bit of time to reflect. Um, I think allowing that reflection just makes you prioritize what makes you happy. I mean, I'm, I'm still looking at the moment and I could imagine myself probably going back into, into charity work, but I think I'm so <laughs> scarred by what happened with the RSPCA that I want to the world to kind of come out of this pandemic and then I'll go to another charity. But just you focus on those COVID vaccinations for now and then we'll see what happens after that. Okay? Good. <laughs> jab, jab, jab. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> jab, jab, jab. <laughs> 
don't do it like that. People won't like that. <laughs> and certainly, and certainly, don't say jab, jab, jab as you're giving the vaccines because people will be like, "No, who the hell is this guy?" <laughs> Okay, Liz, so welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while. We're really pleased to bring you back for these um, these clinical segments. So how are you getting on? Okay? Yeah, really well, thank you. Despite being in lockdown <laughs> version three. Yeah? Yeah. I know, I know. And how how, <laughs> how is um, motherly life? Is that treating you well? Motherly life, yeah, is good. Obviously, it's different maternity leave than what I expected would be coffee mornings at people's houses and various things which we're not obviously doing and instead it's walking in the snow and the rain and various other I know, I know. Um, horrible elements but yeah I'm enjoying it it's good good so we thought we'd spice up your maternity leave by bringing you back to do some of our sort of clinical segments of the podcast which is really exciting so I was thinking the other day about things that questions that bothered me <laughs> and um, I wanted to um, start by f- us talking about some of the common arrhythmias that we'll see particularly in sick patients and I thought this was particularly interesting and sort of applicable for people because many sick in inverted commas uh, particularly dogs will come into uh, the emergency room or uh, uh, you know as an emergency And they will have a number of arrhythmias which are not always related to primary cardiac disease. And I do think that kind of poses a bit of a conundrum sometimes um, in practice when we kind of are are decision making about which arrhythmias actually need to be treated. So I wonder if we can start by kind of talking about just fast heart rates. Mm -hmm. My first question is... (laughs) How fast is too fast, <laughs> and when, <laughs> and when, and when should we start to be worrying about heart rates, particularly, like I said, in these kind of emergency patients? I guess it depends on the context and the, the mm. rhythm that we're faced with. So, a lot of patients that will come in with a fast heart rate will probably just have sinus tachycardia associated with hypoxia or volume depletion, pyrexia, um, and so really that's um tachycardia will just be addressed by fluid challenging them or oxygen supplementation you know um so i think the 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 first thing the very first thing that it sounds very obvious but i think probably we all need to get better at doing is when these patients with tachycardia come into the clinic is that we actually put an ecg on because we can't treat the rhythm without knowing what it is um mm-hmm. and you can't just by auscultation tell whether it's a sinus tachycardia from a supraventricular tachycardia from a ventricular tachycardia so i know we were always taught as residents in the emergency room when the patient first comes in they automatically get oxygen and the first thing that goes on them is an ecg um so you know i think that is mm-hmm. is really important um so yeah so the majority of them will be sinus tachycardia yeah and I think that's really true what you say. Like, I think the really the the main things I always kind of think about with these, again, these kind of sick patients generally is, you know, are they painful? Are they volume depleted? And I definitely think that those are the first, for me, certainly they are the kind of, and, and, and actually, to be honest with you, the majority of them are one of those things and are yeah. a combination of those things. Yeah. Would that kind of, you know, 
fluid challenging them, giving them a fluid bolus because they probably are volume depleted, would that ever be detrimental if there truly was an underlying primary cardiac disease? In, I think dogs tolerate fluid challenge a lot better than cats because cats' hearts don't relax properly. You can very quickly fluid, fluid overload um, a heart that doesn't relax very well. Um, but dogs can tolerate fluid challenge better. Um, and I think, you know, if you've got a, a, a dog that's got sinus tachycardia because it's because you suspect it's volume depleted, you know, maybe it's hemorrhaged or it's got severe gastrointestinal signs, then giving them a bolus of fluids isn't going to be the wrong thing to do. Plus, the majority of our patients have mitral valve disease and they actually maintain their systolic function fairly well, at least until the end of um, the disease process. And that's more common in larger dogs that get systolic dysfunction with mitral valve disease. So actually their hearts can, can tolerate, you know, more f- sort of fluid than, than if they, they didn't have that reserve function. So in my mind, if, you're, if you suspect volume depletion, and, you know, a lot of these cases will get fast scanned, I suppose, if they come into to practice. So they'll have a, a focus ultrasound of their chest. And so you can, if you can, then have a look at the left atrium and see if it's big or not. And hopefully if it's normal size, then I would go ahead and, and bolus that animal and see what the response is to one bolus of fluids. Okay. We've kind of thought about those things. We've thought about pain. We've thought about... Uh, volume depletion and we've kind of addressed those things we've put an ECG on what do we when do we start to be uh, concerned are there kind of key things that we'll be looking for Um, I know ECGs are very visual and um, the podcast is not but um, are there kind of key things that we would be looking for on that ECG that would be guiding us in a particular direction yeah so I think that I think the thing that we need to be most worried about is ventricular tachycardia right so ventricular tachycardia um, means that the heart doesn't effectively fill during diastole. So when it's in its resting state, the resting state is so short that you you haven't got enough blood in the ventricle to then eject around the body, which then means there's not enough cardiac output. So um, what we really want to know with the ECG is, is this tachycardia a supraventricular or a ventricular tachycardia? And those ventricular tachycardias will be wide and bizarre looking and they won't have any P waves associated with those. Um, To go back to your original question about rate, that is a little bit of a a point sometimes that's debated, I suppose, as to what constitutes a tachycardia or a ventricular tachycardia in our patients. Some suggest a cutoff of 160 beats per minute. Um, Others would be more likely sort of around 200 beats per minute. but probably somewhere between 180 and 200 beats per minute. And you also have to bear in mind the state of the patient, so the hemodynamic status. So what's the blood pressure? Is the blood pressure low with a heart rate of 180? Then we would treat that if it's a ventricular tachycardia. If the blood pressure is normal with a, blood pr- with a rate of 180, then sometimes we might not treat that necessarily um, straight away. We might do other things like address pain and whatever um first um so it really depends on the hemodynamic dynamic status of that individual patient as well so we're talking about ventricular tachycardia as you're saying that these are obviously fast heart rates although there's some debate about the rate 
they are wide and bizarre. When does a sinus tachycardia become a ventricular tachycardia? So a sinus tachycardia will have, um, it'll be tall and narrow, so it'll look like your standard ECG that you would expect, um, just at a very fast rate. So, you know, a tachycardia for a dog would be anything over 120 beats per minute. We would class that as a tachycardia. Um, and a sin- and we call it sinus because it has a P wave associated with it. So the P wave um, just shows that the heartbeat is originating in the atria. Um, and so you see that on an ECG as a P wave. And then that then from the atria, the wave depolarization goes to the ventricles. And that's the QRS complex on the ECG. So the sinus tachycardia has a P wave and a normal looking QRS complex. It becomes a ventricular tachycardia when we lose that P wave. So we know, so we don't have um, the atria controlling the how fast the ventricles are going. So the P wave will generally um, not be visible uh, or not always visible. It'll, it won't be associated with the QRS complex. Um, and the QRS complex won't look normal. So it won't look nice and tall and narrow. It'll look really wide. Um, and bizarre looking which is what you know we're always banding these words around but they definitely look bizarre they don't look like a normal qrs complex yeah and i think that's the thing like people get panicked about this sort of thing where what's what's normal with an ecg but i think to be honest with you we all know what a normal ecg looks like because actually ecgs are in the logos for casualty or in the credits for casualty or in like, um, you know, the logo for vets now or, you know, like no, those kind of ECG complexes actually all around us. And we do all know what they, they look like. So I think we need to trust our instinct. If it doesn't look right, then it probably isn't right. You know, it doesn't look like a normal, normal complex. Would you ever, just to, just so we're really clear, would you ever, would you ever have to treat a sinus tachycardia with any sort of antiarrhythmic drug? No, not a sinus tachycardia. So, because a sinus tachycardia is a physiological response to something, so pain, you know, yeah. hypoxia, volume depletion, all of those things trigger the sympathetic nervous system and make the heart beat faster because the heart, because the body okay. wants more cardiac output. So that's how we increase cardiac output by elevating heart rate mostly. Um, so no, we wouldn't treat the rhythm. We would only treat the animal, you know, the condition that we think the animal has. Okay. So then when we are going on to talk about treating ventricular tachycardias, what is kind of our first line of defense for treating those? So ventricular tachycardias, we would try, um, lidocaine first. So we use lidocaine, <clears throat> various people use it in various ways, obviously. Um, but we tend to think of two mg per kg boluses um so a two mg per kg bolus of lidocaine intravenously and then whilst the ecg is running and then um wait for a few minutes after that bolus to see if it will convert the wide and bizarre or weird looking rhythm back to a normal rhythm um mm-hmm. and actually the majority of ventricular tachycardias will convert after one or two boluses of lidocaine it's, it's actually quite rare for them not to respond to lidocaine. For, so two things then. So first of all, 
if there wasn't a response to lidocaine, what would be, and, and, and as you've said, that's obviously quite rare, but what would be your next go-to intervention? Yeah, so I think the thing to remember is that you've got a few chances of lidocaine. So you can use up to 10 mg per kg IV of lidocaine before you reach the therapeutic threshold. So um, you can use multiples of 2 mg per kg boluses up to 8 to 10 mg per kg. Um, the only thing you have to be aware of is side effects. So one of the first side effects that we'll see in dogs is vomiting. And if you see a dog that vomits after lidocaine, then we'd probably be more cautious about going to those really high doses. Um, because, because it's um, a local anaesthetic, the more the closer you get to that sort of 10 mg per kg dose, the more likely you are to see neurological side effects. So um, muscle tremors, seizuring, they can and they can die from lidocaine. So we've got quite a quite a, a large window that we can you know we've got a few doses of lidocaine that we can give if it doesn't respond to the first one and the dog isn't sick then i would definitely go for a second and even a third dose then if lidocaine doesn't work our next go-to would probably be something like sotalol the potassium channel antagonist mm -hmm. we do have an injectable form of that but that has to have a special import license so i'm aware that the majority of practices won't have the intravenous version of that drug mm. um, and so actually you can just give it orally okay and it'll work sort of 30 to 60 minutes which might seem a long time with a dog with ventricular tachycardia but if you've treated the lidocaine and you've only got oral sotalol on the shelf then you've got no other option okay I suppose that well that's reassuring in some way like I think we've we can only do what we can do yeah, I think the other I'm just thinking about that kind of and I've certainly been in that panic moment where you're so you're faced with this dog who's got this tachycardia and actually you're standing there thinking to yourself I mean I think I know what this ECG is telling me but I'm not actually yeah 100% sure and I yeah. feel a bit sick so I think <laughs> my, we feel like that as well <laughs> yes well exactly so if you feel sick then imagine how the rest of us feel um I my question is if you're 80% 60% 50% confident that it's a ventricular tachycardia and you're like we need to give lidocaine is there any situation where giving lidocaine would be detrimental if you got it wrong I guess if the dog was neurological but really at two mix per kg I can't really think of a, a situation in terms of an arrhythmia and actually some supraventricular arrhythmias so those yeah. arrhythmias that are coming from the atria um, do actually respond to lidocaine as well so I don't I think if you're not sure one thing you could try would be a vagal maneuver first so a vagal maneuver okay. means stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system either by pressing on the eyeballs which sounds pretty uncomfortable quite hard I'm pressing on my own eyeballs as we speak for the listeners <laughs> I can confirm she is pressing on her eyeballs um, or carotid massage or both and a vagal <laughs> Just literally like poking the poor dog like in its neck, in its eyes. And if you do that and it slows the rate down or breaks the rate into a sinus rhythm, so with you know a P wave with every QRS, then that means that it's a supraventricular tachycardia. Oh, that's pretty cool. So a vagal maneuver is not giving any drugs, but you're doing something to the body that slows down the heart rate, but it'll only work in a supraventricular tachycardia. Okay, so that so we've talked about sinus tachycardia, where actually there isn't really an intervention there. We've talked about ventricular tachycardia, where 
you know, the, the, the exact rate of intervention is obviously not totally well defined, but certainly 180 to 200, we'd start to think about our intervention. So then just to kind of round everything off, we, we've talked about, you've then mentioned supraventricular tachycardia, um, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, an arrhythmia that's coming from the atria. Yeah. So what, what's an example kind of of that? in a clinical setting? So there's many different types of supraventricular tachycardias. Um, it's not quite as straightforward as ventricular tachycardia. Pick a few. <laughs> so one, a, a supraventricular tachycardia that people will be familiar with would be atrial fibrillation, for yeah, example. That, that's what I was hoping you would pick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, otherwise, a super interesting one would be Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. So these accessory pathways that dogs can get, particularly Labradors. Um, but there are many of this, there's other ones as well that other supraventricular tachycardias that we can have. Okay, so that so I think atrial fibrillation is the one that comes into mind. Uh, you know, yeah. mind. So just to so we've got an example of that. So what um what are the kind of classic things that we'll see um atrial fibrillation wise on an ECG that would help us tell that that was not a ventricular tachycardia? So we wouldn't see P waves. So similar, that'd be similar to ventricular tachycardia. We would mm. generally see a tall, narrow QRS. So the QRS complex would look like a normal QRS complex that we see on a normal ECG. It would be generally fast, but it doesn't always have to be fast. Emergency setting in a dog with heart failure, it would generally be fast. And it would have a very irregular intervals between the QRS complexes so there aren't any really arrhythmias that will have an irregular rhythm without a P wave and tall narrow QRS complexes. Okay so those are the, the those are the main points and what is going to be your go-to for treating atrial fibrillation? So atrial fibrillation doesn't have to be treated in the emergency setting and um, if you've got a very fast heart rate and the animals usually will have congestive heart failure you really need to treat the congestion first because the body is, is again, it's a physiological response to having heart failure. The body's trying to increase cardiac output, so it increases the heart rate. So by controlling the congestion or the congestive heart failure, you'll actually lower that heart rate anyway. So it's not something that we would treat there and then. We would, nowadays, our go-to would probably be diltiazam initially. Um, although if the rate is very fast, so diltiazam is a calcium channel blocker. If the rate is very fast, we would combine diltiazam with digoxin. Yeah, so those would be some injectable drugs that you would use to control the congestion, and then these are other oral tablets that might help um, alongside that. Yeah, I think you just we just have to be very careful with digoxin. We don't we do some I do sometimes see digoxin being used without an ECG, but I think we have to remember that digoxin is actually toxic it's quite a toxic mm -hmm. drug so i would only ever use digoxin if i was confident or i had an ecg that confirmed atrial fibrillation mm -hmm. and i wouldn't use it if the dog was anorexic or had gastrointestinal signs or was hypokalemic mm -hmm. um i would go with diltiazam first and control mm -hmm. the congestion um, and just remember that if you use digoxin it just needs monitoring so after a week, we would take mm -hmm. um, blood just to check the, the therapeutic levels of digoxin. And actually, I think there was something else there that I just thought was really interesting um, that I do think, correct me again if I'm wrong, but I think in these you know patients that are sick, that are in the ICU, another really important part of their 
monitoring, not just because they've got arrhythmias, but um, certainly monitoring of electrolytes, acid base, particularly electrolytes, I think is really important. Um, you know, we know that, you know, and I think that, you know, we've got to be addressing these animals' systemic, potentially systemic disease as well. It's all kind of playing in. And so it's these, um, it's all part of this bigger picture. And I think we often worry about uh, arrhythmias, but as we've kind of run through there, I think actually quite nicely, you know, um, and I know it's, it's, we're just kind of summarizing in some ways, but I think it's, it's about, yes, being aware of, of arrhythmias and when it's appropriate to treat, but equally we're treating systemically ill patients. And we need to be thinking about all of it because actually, as we said at the beginning, fluid uh, resuscitation, pain management, um, are all going to be important parts of this as well. And I think that's really important just to add one thing would be with the ventricular rhythm, which is called accelerated idioventricular rhythm. Um, and these are ventricular, they look like ventricular tachycardia. So they have wide and bizarre QRS complexes um, without associated P waves, but the rate is slower. So the rate might be 120 or 140, 160. The dog isn't hemodynamically compromised because of that rhythm. Um, and actually, uh, often those ventricular rhythms are caused by systemic disease. So it'd be, we'd see it in a dog with um, gastrointestinal disease or IMHA, lymphoma, you know, anything that's systemically unwell that upsets the heart. We will quite often see these slow ventricular rhythms that we don't treat. We just will treat the underlying disease process. I think that's a really interesting point because it's a bit of a mouth accelerated idioventricular idioventricular rhythm but actually these are in essence you've just kind of simplified that because it is it looks like a ventricular rhythm but it's slower than a you know that 182 or whatever else so um and I think that's really important to remember because people will look at the ECG complexes that don't look right but just knowing that actually that's part of the systemic disease and actually treating the systemic disease is all we need to do at that stage you know and I think that's really um, that's really valuable amazing well thanks so honestly that I think that's um, certainly something that I've experienced in, in emergency practice and still to this day I think people particularly out of hours out there will appreciate uh, that so I really um, yeah really thanks so much that was a really uh, great whistle stop tour of some of the common arrhythmias that we'll see you're welcome thanks Liz okay <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Michael for chatting with us this week. Really so insightful and, and so wonderful to chat to, to chat to him. Thanks to our lovely Liz for taking us through our arrhythmia uh, discussion. Uh, and thank you to all of you, as always, for listening. We really do appreciate the support. If you're on social media, then please head over to our social media platforms to give us a like, follow and share. For more details about what VTX does, then head over to our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com. Thanks again to everyone for listening and we will see you next time.